I think having a home base is, is good because then it allows you to find these cheaper deals to go to places, for example, European flights, you know, Ryanair, assuming they still exist after the pandemic. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Fi Show, but I could not be doing this thing by myself, so let's check in with my co-host, Justin. What's up, man? Well, this weekend is a little boring because it's basically our last weekend to be boring before our big move to Austin, because next weekend... We're going whitewater rafting. Then the following weekend, we're going to try to have a little bit of time to say goodbye to some people from the area because we literally only have these three weekends. So not much to report on my front. How about you, Cody? Well, this last week has definitely been a whirlwind. So as many people probably heard, if you're not in the East Coast, there was the hurricane that came up and just absolutely obliterated everything. And I kind of thought it was going to miss us, but nope. It didn't. A huge power line went down. A transformer went down. More than 50% of the places in my town lost power, like the supermarket, all the stores. So I was actually recording this from my mom's house. And yeah, it's just been absolutely nuts. And then I just came back from New Jersey and I was visiting my cousins down there. We actually went whitewater rafting on Saturday. It was a ton of fun. So Justin, I'm sure you're going to have a ton of fun next weekend. And actually, I almost forgot to mention, Justin, even though this is obviously a huge point, is I'm kind of getting started in my real estate investing journey. So I just closed on a house in Putnam, Connecticut that my girlfriend and I are going to live in as a house hack. And at the same exact time, this awesome deal came up down in Huntsville. And as many people know, we have had James on twice, James Lowry from Rethink Their At Race. He kind of hooked me up with his connections there. And so now I'm also under contract for an investment property down in Huntsville. So got the double whammy going, super excited about that. But that's enough about us for today. Justin, let's take a quick moment for our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN lets you access the internet as if you're from a different country. So Netflix and all these different streaming services have shows and movies available depending on your location. So with ExpressVPN, you can choose from almost 100 different countries and have your location based on whatever show or movie you want to watch. There are hundreds of different VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is super fast. You can stream everything in HD quality with zero buffering. It's also available on every device, phones, laptops, tablets, even your TV. Plus, it's super easy to use. You can change your location with the click of a button. The other week, my girlfriend and I wanted to watch Harry Potter. It wasn't on any of the US streaming services, but change the location to Canada and boom, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is on the screen. If you use our link right now at expressvpn.com slash show, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So again, that's expressvpn.com slash show to watch your favorite movies, TV shows, as if you are anywhere around the globe at lightning fast speeds. expressvpn.com slash show. And today on the Fi Show, we have Bob from Takan. Now, Bob grew up in Taiwan. He moved over to Vancouver in his early teens and... Later down the road, he ends up meeting his wife from Denmark. So this guy's got a really multicultural background. And the reason we brought him on today was so we could talk about geo-arbitrage, kind of the different costs of living around the world, some of the tax implications that you might expect, and just so many cool nuggets about different places that you could possibly live to either have financial dependence faster or have a better quality of life. So many different possibilities out there. But I'm not going to take away all his thunder. Take it away, Bob. In my family, maybe it's a bit different than your typical family. We we talk money quite openly. Money has never been a taboo subject. So 
growing up in Asia, my grandparents, both sides of my, my family came from a farming background. So we always talk about being frugal, you know, don't spend more than what you earn. So that has always been part of the mentality and that translated when we moved over to Canada as well, right? So from growing up, it's always been, okay, make sure you're frugal, don't overspend on things and, you know, really, really think about, although we, my parents then wore like retirement, but more thinking, okay, if you earn $100 today, save some a little bit so you could you could spend it later on kind of thing. Right? So that has helped me from a very young age. And digging into your family a little bit more, I think I read where you actually have a few family members who retired early, which is what the show's all about. So could you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, for sure. It, it's been interesting. So my dad retired when in his early 40s, mid-40s, basically when we moved over to Canada. I have a cousin that retired when he was 41 or 42. And another cousin, she became financially independent but decided to continue working because she's a doctor and she has her own clinic and stuff. So she kind of feel obligated to continue. So these, these three figures have been significant influences in my life, right? Like going up, see my dad being able to go send us to school and then also going to all these different events, right? So that has been great. And then also my cousin looking at what they've been doing because they're maybe about 10 years older than me, what they've been doing with their family has been inspirational to me. And how did your dad achieve financial independence? Again, just typically being frugal family and, you know, some investments and also some real estate as well. So that that has helped. And something you do a lot, Bob, and you talk about this a ton on your blog, Talkin, is kind of combining frugality with travel and doing something called geo-arbitrage. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on is because you have this diverse multicultural background. But before we kind of dig into that, could you just let listeners know who don't know what is geo-arbitrage or what is taking advantage of different locations? Yeah, so in short, geo-arbitrage is basically living in a low-cost living city or area such that your your living expenses are much lower than than you would normally do. So take U.S., for example, if you live in California as a L.A., or even San Francisco, your cost of living is probably a lot higher than if you were to live in, say, Idaho or somewhere in Montana, for example, right? So that that's one part of your arbitrage to, to find a lower cost of living within the country that like you live in, right? So I, I'm from Canada, so we live in Vancouver, which is one of the most expensive cities in the world. So one of the options would be moving to a smaller town in Canada that would reduce the, the living expenses for sure. But to expand on your arbitrage is that you could also move to a different country, right? So for example, Southeast Asia, Thailand is a popular place for a lot of people looking to reduce their living expenses. Parts of Europe as well, you know, Central America, South America, bunch of opportunities. And I guess just to kind of like dig into that a little more, maybe a little bit of a devil's advocate, when you're looking at moving to a smaller city versus, you know, the larger one and that kind of high cost of living versus low cost of living, do you think about like the difference though in earning potential or maybe the difference in these other costs that get hidden a little bit? For instance, if you're living maybe, you know, in a small town in Idaho, maybe it takes you hours and you got to pay a bunch of parking to go to the airport. Whereas if you live in Boston, like you just jump on the train and fly somewhere and flights are cheap. That sort of thing. I'm just curious, like if you do any of that analysis, it goes like a little bit broader than just your typical rent and also factoring in, you know, that earning potential. 
Yeah, for sure. So it, it really depends on what your profession is. As if you're still working, for example, if you're a doctor, maybe that earning salary is, is actually might be better in a smaller town, right? Whereas if you work in high tech, yeah, your options will be limited. Now, since we're recording during the whole COVID pandemic, that might be actually an advantage because now if you look at a lot of the high-tech companies in, in California, in the Silicon Valley, they're actually telling workers to work from home. So instead of having to live in San Francisco, it's like, like if you work for Google or Facebook or Apple, you're kind of, before you're kind of restricted to have to live in the Bay Area because you have to go to work. But now because you're working from home, maybe you don't have to live in San Fran. You could live in Idaho and you know, still do the same job, but at a lower cost of living, right? A good friend of mine used to live in San Francisco, you know, working in a, in a biomedical company. He just recently moved back to, to Vancouver, and he's still doing the same job. He's getting paid U.S. dollars, but he's living in Canada, which is lower cost of living. And then you take an exchange rate into consideration. That definitely will help you in terms of dollars and, and cents at the end of the day. So I know you're a super analytical guy, I think in one of your posts or in many of your posts, you've called yourself like a self-proclaimed Excel nerd. And so you really dig into the financial parts of these moves, like moving to a different country or a different part of the same country. On a tactical level, you talk about some of the moves that you've maybe considered and the financial implications of those moves or of those potential moves. Right. So I'm originally from Taiwan. So that's one option we could do, move back to Taiwan. My wife is from Denmark. So we could move, also move to Denmark. Now, Denmark is quite high cost of living compared to Taiwan. And also, when you look at both of us have dual citizenship. So that's another thing to look into if you're looking into geo arbitrage, right? So to move to a city that you're a citizen of is a lot easier because you don't have to deal with residency and, and visa and all that stuff. Having said that, Denmark is a little bit harder to stay for an extended time for me. Basically, I have to get a job, and that kind of defeats the whole purpose of fire, right? <laughs> but yeah, it, it's we definitely look into like moving to Taiwan for a year or two. Could be doing the same job, or even just you know not not working because of lower cost of living. Now with Denmark, I probably have to get a job to get a visa. But there are other country, European countries that give you visa. For example, Germany, pretty easy to get if you have if you're a, a freelancer. Spain, if you have, a, if you could prove you have a million dollar in your bank account, you could, you could supplement yourself. They give you residency, and then a few other European countries too. Uh, I believe Portugal has something similar as well. And some European countries, if you get a residence, like buy a house at a certain value, they allow you to become a resident as well. So there are many different policies. Even even now, I, I see uh, Barbados is allowing people to live there for a year because of COVID. And if you could work from Barbados, that might be a good opportunity too, right? And with those two locations, since obviously you're super familiar probably with the numbers of say living in Denmark for a year or living in Taiwan for a year, like how much are we talking in terms of month to month savings from what you're currently spending? Just so we can get people an idea who have never actually looked into these opportunities. Right. So Taiwan, like for example, I like ramen, Japanese ramen. The actual, not the instant one, but like the actual cooking one. So to give you an idea, like above, there, there's chains from, from Japan, right? So there's a particular chain in Vancouver. And a bowl of ramen is maybe like 12, 12 to 13 Canadians. So about 10 US, I would say. 
in Taiwan, I actually found the same location, and it's about maybe five to seven dollar Canadian. So you're you're looking at you know probably thirty forty percent cost saving. Food is really cheap in Taiwan now. Depending on where in Taiwan you live, in Taipei, which is the north of the country, that's the most expensive area in the in the country. As you move south, it becomes cheaper and cheaper. So rents are cheaper, houses are cheaper, you know, groceries are cheaper. Generally speaking, cost of living will be cheaper. So compare Vancouver to to Taiwan, I would say you could say probably around anywhere from thirty to almost fifty percent, depending on on where you live, right? Which is pretty significant. Now, Denmark, we're probably looking at on part of Vancouver, maybe a little bit more, depending on where you live as well. So next month, I'm actually doing a little bit of geo arbitrage by moving down to Austin, Texas, which will save me $8,000 a year just in state taxes, you know, by going from a state that has state income tax versus one that doesn't. And I'm curious if you have any neat stories about other countries. Like I know I've heard Puerto Rico, for instance, if you live there for like 181 days, you only get your income gets taxed at like 3% at the federal level instead of 20 something percent. So I don't know if you had looked in any countries that maybe had some really nice tax implications for a, a U.S. citizen to go live at part time or try to move to. I've looked into it. I haven't done extensive research. Now, it, it depends on what country you're from, right? So we're Canadian, you guys are American, so it's a little bit different. But generally speaking, most of these countries have tax deals with, with Canada and the US. So you you have to pay whatever taxes you pay in that country that you're living in, you you get a, some sort of tax credit in Canada or US, right? Because it's a is your global income. If I recall correctly, like Singapore is pretty pretty good in terms of tax treatment. You get preferential tax treatment if you if you live there. I want to say Thailand is pretty good as well. And, and again, it depends on if you're working there or not. If you retire and you're just living off your, your investment portfolio, then you know, you, you're paying very little tax or even no tax in these countries. One thing I kind of want to pivot to, because this is something I'm really interested in and totally my arena is slow travel. And I know you've done this, Bob, you've wrote about this quite a bit. If I'm not mistaken, you were traveling around in Germany for like eight months, spending 800 pounds or 800 euros, I should say, per month. Could you talk about some slow travel tips? Because I have people who I talk to about slow travel and they're like, there's no way you can go live in X, Y, or Z country for six grand for six months. But you've done it. So I'd love to hear like on a tactical level, what are some of the little neat hacks and tricks that you did? Yeah, I think I think the North Americans, the biggest mistake that you see a lot of people do when they travel to Europe is I only had like 10 countries in, in 10 days or something like that. Right. Which is crazy. If you talk to my wife, like when I first met my wife, I told her that why well, I saw the, the whole Copenhagen in a weekend and she's like, you're crazy. Right. So, so different mentality. So yes, we definitely enjoy slow travel more. And yeah, I, I lived in Germany for eight months. I was working there as a, as a co-op student while I was going to university so that give me a, a sense of what slow travel looks like. What was really nice was having a home base in Europe. Instead of backpacking cities to cities, I had a base where I could go back during the week. I travel on the weekend or extend the weekend. Traveling is tiring. When I was living in Germany, I often found myself passed out sitting on a chair and waking up middle of the night. I'm like, wait, did I fall asleep? Because I was travel. I think I spent maybe three weekends actually in the city I was 
staying in. I, I was in Hanover. I mean, you spent three or four weekends there physically. The other weekend out of these eight months, I was traveling constantly. So you can imagine, very tiring. Now some tips. I think having a home base is, is good because then it allows you to find these cheaper deals to go to places. For example, European flights, you know, Ryanair, assuming they still exist after the pandemic. Right? There, there are some cheap airfares. Also with, with Germany, there's trains. They have some really fantastic deals, right? And you could ride on ICE, which is their fast train to go over Germany or even outside of Germany. When I first got to Germany, I was living with other Canadians. We didn't get paid yet. So we took we took a train trip, which uh, in Germany, there's a, there's a ticket called Wokenender. Essentially, I think back then it was 30 euros for five people. And you could travel slow trains, not the fast trains, slow trains anywhere in Germany for the weekend, I think. I, I may be mistaken because it's been a while. So you imagine we like, you know, we, we, we were four of us. We hop on the train, bought these 30 euro ticket and went to a small town and just camped there and we hitchhiked everywhere. So that's one tip you could do. Another thing is when you have a home base, when you're, when you're not traveling all the time, you are able to cook your own food. Now with Airbnb, that becomes easier. Back when I was there, I was in, I was in Germany in 2004. Airbnb wasn't around, right? So when you're traveling, you're really, if you only go ultra cheap, it's hostels. That's the only option you have, right? But even hostel, some hostel, you don't, you're not able to cook yourself, right? So you, you're forced to have to eat out and that costs a lot of money. So again, having a home base where you could, you could cook your own meal. And even when I was traveling in, in Germany, what happens, you know, if I know I'm going from Germany to, I don't know, Czech Republic, Prague, right? One, one trip we did was we trained from, from Hanover to Prague, which was a while. I packed all my lunches, right? I had peanut butter jelly sandwiches, like a stack of them. And I just packed them up, put them in my backpack. And that, that's what I ate. And that was super cheap, right? So that's another option. Yeah, I, I think if you could slow travel, you definitely would be able to save a lot of expenses. And also you, you're probably not partying as much. Another thing that when people go to Europe or, or even Asia backpacking is you tra- you party a lot. When you have a home page, you maybe don't party as much, right? Because it, it doesn't uh, attract you as much. So those are a few tips you could you could use. I think those are a lot of great points. And it kind of all falls into this trap that sometimes we fall into, which is thinking about these like six month trips the same way we think about a one week trip and then just trying to multiply it. And that's not true, whether it be cost or the amount of time you get to really like sink into something because, you know, you're spreading the flight cost over a lot more days. You can get housing situations that are, you know, longer term, which have much better rates. You can be a little more selective. You're not going to feel like you got to go out and eat at a restaurant every night because you're going to be in the country for so long. So I think those are a lot of great points, but I actually kind of wanted to pivot to something that you brought up, which was meeting your wife. And there's this cool thing that I read where you guys actually got married three times for $9,000. So I would love to hear the breakdown of A, like, why did you get married three times? B, how in the world did you do it for $9,000? Because what this is showing me is that all this travel you did in this frugal mindset must obviously be shared by your wife. Yeah, it's actually, I think $9,000 was Canadian. So if you convert it to US, it's actually less. It's actually around under 7,000 US, which is crazy because 
when you consider wedding, people spend like thousands and thousands of dollars, right? So to answer your question, why did we decide to have three weddings? So again, my wife was originally from Denmark. We now live in Vancouver. We met in Vancouver. We didn't get married just to to get her visa, but back then she was on she was a she was here as an exchange student, and then she came back here. You know, she had a you know Canada and Denmark had this deal. I forgot exactly what it's called, but basically you could you could stay in Canada for a year and working if you're under a certain age, and her time was ticking up. And it was toward the end. We're like, well, I like you, you like me. Should we get married kind of thing, right? So I popped the question at her birthday party, surprised her and proposed in front of a bunch of our friends. So surprise everybody. And and we just thought, okay, let's get married for cheap. And getting married is it doesn't take doesn't cost a lot of money. All you need is you know a, a marriage certificate, a marriage commissioner, that's it. I mean, all the other stuff are extra. So we thought, okay, let's just get the paper done so we could start applying for your permanent residency in Canada, right? Get the process started. So that's what we did. So uh, the first wedding was literally just my, me, my wife, my parents, my brother. And then I, I had a, a good friend of mine that, that took photos for us. And that was it. My wife is very DIY, right? She does a lot of things. So she made our wedding cake. Uh, she also made her own wedding dress, which is impressive. I already had a suit, so I used the my my suit, so that was no cost, right? So and then and then uh, that night after the wedding, we went out for dinner. I think my parents pay, and I think we found some coupon um, <laughs> to to save some money, right? And then a month later, we we thought, okay, yeah, we we got married, but we didn't really invite our friends and family so we we had a small wedding i think we ended up inviting about 40 or 50 people's close friends and her parents came from denmark we had a celebration and we we didn't go we didn't do our wedding ceremony like reception at like some fancy restaurant or hotel we booked a community uh center which was cheap we hired somebody that worked in my works cafeteria and he made awesome food he eventually went to teach at a culinary school so his food was good, but because he was starting out, we were able to hire him for cheap or lower than, than usual, right? And then we hired a photographer that was uh, starting out. So that was able to, we were able to call, keep the cost down. For alcohol, we uh, we bought our own alcohol, right? So that all that stuff kept the cost down. And then for the second wedding, my wife altered her wedding dress to make it look a little bit different. So she, she reused her wedding dress, which was big. Right. And then a year later, we um, decided to fly to Denmark to have our third wedding. So her side of family and friends could join. So, again, we we didn't do a crazy big wedding at some fancy restaurant. We actually had the wedding reception at a, at a small town school. Right. And then hire some people to cook. And then alcohol was was I think it was home brew or something I I forgot. For photography, I asked my brother to take some pictures. I was taking pictures of myself, which was thinking back was a little bit awkward <laughs> trying to take your own wedding pictures. But it worked out and it was cheap and uh, we got some money back from guests and stuff. So yeah, that's how we ended up doing it for under seven thousand US. Which and and it was amazing. We had like tons of pictures and great experience, great stories, and it was good. 
Wow. Well, that is awesome, Bob. And I love how crafty you are with your frugality. And I kind of want to pivot this to a thing that I hear a lot is once people have kids, they just say, well, that's it. I can never travel again. It's way too expensive. Having kids is impossible to travel. But I know this is not the case for you guys. So could you talk about maybe some tips that we could share with our listeners about traveling with kids, making it more affordable or maybe even bearable (laughs) for those parents who think that it's the be all end all. Once you have kids, you cannot travel anymore. We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis in my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash show, all lowercase, at shopify.com slash show to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash show. Now back to the show. So I think domestically, if you travel before the, your kid turns two, they fight for free. Internationally, it's about 10% of your the adult tickets. Now they have to sit with you. So when your kids are young, like when they're like babies, it's really easy to travel because they they get out, they sleep, they get out and sleep. As they get a little bit older, like once before they turn two, it gets a little bit harder because holding something in your lap for for the duration of the flight is is tough. Like so, we for example, we we flew back to Denmark with our oldest when he was about ten weeks old. That was that was super easy. And then we we flew to Japan with him just before he turned two, and then we started flying with when our youngest was born we started flying to Denmark and we we went to New York went to Japan Taiwan bunch of places biggest tip I have is if you could figure out the seating chart see if you could book on a flight that's somewhat empty so you could put the kid on an empty seat so you don't have to sit with the the kid travel hacking becomes very important when you're a parent definitely utilizing those points I know the U.S. credit cards are more lucrative compared to Canadian ones so definitely do that. Consider traveling during low seasons, right? A lot of parents travel, especially with kids in school, is they travel in the summers. And you know, if you if you look at the the plane ticket price between I don't know, June twentieth, because our our school goes out end of June, June twentieth to like July fourth, July fifth, there's a, a sudden jump in terms of price of the plane ticket. So try to travel on the low season. Yeah, and, and really don't don't limit yourself thinking that because you have kids, you can't travel where it's going to be hard. Like our kids are six and four, and because they've traveled so much, they're they're experts. I think last time we counted, I think my oldest has been probably something like 15 flights or something now. So, or more, I can't remember. But uh they they know what to do. They get on the fly, and and now with them sitting having their own seat, they could entertain themselves. It it gets a lot easier. So there are definitely some tips and pointers. Like 
some some parents think, oh, it's it's crazy flying across the ocean with with a with a little one. But you know, if you train them well, you could do it. <laughs> Those are awesome tips, and glad that we could have you to kind of walk us through that because obviously me and Cody don't have kids, so that's why we try to bring on guests with a little bit different backgrounds. But now the one thing that we haven't jumped into quite yet is exactly the method of all this, like how you're doing this, how you're making your way to financial independence. So what are you doing like on a tactical level to reach financial independence? Is it real estate? Is it some specific type of investing? I don't know if you could just walk us through that. Sure. So we're a single income family, so that that's a little bit different than than some of your fire folks. Our strategy is to invest in through dividend and index funds. We own our primary resident, our house. We don't do real estate investing because the real estate in Vancouver is is crazy. Like you could probably buy a shift for like a million dollar in like Vancouver proper. That's how crazy it is. Now people are tearing down houses that, that are selling for one million dollars to rebuild houses in our neighborhood. So which is crazy. Anyway, so we have our house. It's not really an investment. It's just something we live in. But we've been uh, investing into our dividend portfolio. By that, I mean dividend-paying stocks and also index funds. And the idea is, although we could be financially independent today, we're kind of doing the slow FI movement where we're working towards one day when our dividend income could pay for annual expenses we'll call ourselves financially independent. So the idea is to live off dividends, not touch our principal, investment principal, probably in the, in the first five to 10 years just to have some margin safety. And then if we do decide to tap into that, we will. And maybe we, we all, another thing we're considering is maybe eventually pass the portfolio down to our kids or their kids. But that, that gets more complicated when it comes to taxes. So something to look into more in the future. So is there a specific reason why I'm guessing your house is probably appreciated insanely since you purchased it or whenever you guys moved in? It's probably, knowing Vancouver, over a million dollars. Is there a reason why you're not selling it and just taking the equity and, you know, hitting financial independence right away and then moving somewhere else? Or is it just because maybe you love Vancouver? Yeah, that's something we definitely talked about, right? So one of our, again, going back to geo-arbitrage, we have plans to eventually live in Taiwan for maybe a year or two even Denmark as well, just so our kids could learn the languages. Why are we not selling our house right now at this very moment? Now, for the most part, we, we enjoy where we live. Like We become friends with our neighbors, and our kids just started school, and they have their friends. I still enjoy my, my work. I get paid well, and I enjoy this. So we're not really in a hurry to move just to get, get to that financial independence stage. Uh, we, we want to sort of take it slowly and then sort of plan out the next five to 10 years accordingly. But yeah, it, we, we don't plan to live here forever. That's not something we, we want to do. We definitely want to go out and travel. And I think both of our kids have had their minds set on uh, travel around the world for a year. So <laughs> maybe once our, our youngest is a little bit older, so she could carry some luggage. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I read that your dividend income is up to like $2,100 a month, which for some people actually would be financial independence. And so if they're interested in dividend investing, what size of a nest egg is it taking to get something like $2,100 in monthly dividends? Yeah, so we don't we don't share our investment portfolio value 
on my blog just for privacy sake. But you could work it backwards, right? So you could do like a 3% yield, 4% yield, 5% yield and get an estimate, right? So we think we need probably around 40,000 40, a year in dividend income. We would we would be able to to live out, like continue living in Vancouver if we move somewhere else like Southeast Asia or you know Eastern Europe, that number would be lower. For margin safety, we said sixty thousand, just so we have some buffer. So sixty thousand at at four percent, I think that gives you what. Uh, trying to do some calculation in real time here, yeah, one point five million. That's that's how much you would need, right? But that that's the portfolio value. That's not the amount of money you actually invest through time. Because if you start today and you invest in through like 10, 20 years, hopefully your investment portfolio's value grows during that time. Right. And so you're not actually putting 1.5 million into your investment portfolio. You're putting a lot less money and that money grows over time. So that's the idea. So one of the things I love about your blog is that you're super optimistic and you've been writing a good bit about how you can kind of take this whole situation that we're in right now with the global pandemic and see some of the opportunities and see some of the brightness amongst the dark. So could you talk about maybe some of the points you hit on in those articles and what people can take away during this COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, it's, it's, I started working from home mid-March. I work at an international company. So, so some of my coworkers in China were you know, working from home for about two to three weeks. So when, when we, we were told to work from home, the first thing was I thought was, okay, those would be two or three weeks, no big deal. Here we are, you know, end of July, you know, still working from home. There's no no time in terms of when we're going back to work. But it takes some time to to uh, adjust, but there are definitely positives. For one, I, I don't have to commute to work anymore, right? Which is huge. Like I'm saving tons of money on gas. Usually it takes me about 30 minutes to go get to work. So roughly an hour each day. That's an hour I could save. I could work on my blog. I could play with my kids, right? I happen to often have very, very early calls, like 6.30 a.m., where I have to get to work. And waking up super early is not always pleasant. So now if I have those calls, I could literally just you know, roll out of bed 10 minutes before, get ready. As long as it's not a, a video call, I'm okay. Video call takes a little bit longer. Um, <laughs> So I have to make myself look presentable. That time saved up, you know, I, I get to spend with my kids. And also journey day, like before, I usually have breakfast with them on the days I don't have to get to work early. I come back and we're, we have dinner. So like realistically, I spend maybe three or four hours with my kids each day. But now I can spend, you know, the whole day, right? Even though I'm working, I can maybe take a quick five minutes, read a story with them or go outside, play with them for a little bit and come back work. Like my, my work schedule is very flexible. So I could do that, fortunately. So that, that's one advantage. Another positive out of this whole pandemic is that our spending has gone down significantly, right? Sure, we're buying a lot more groceries, but like we're saving on gas. We're not eating out as much. Our entertainment expenditure has dropped significantly. We're not traveling anymore. So all that, I, I think this year our expenses would be would be a lot lower compared to the other years, which is a positive, right? And it, it's just important to look at the positive rather than look at the negatives. Now, it's easy to be pessimistic, but I think if you focus on the negatives, it starts to weigh you down, right? So look at the positive, like 
you know, the other day my my car broke down and uh, it's like a, a car fell off, probably going to cost three hundred fifty dollars. I was like, really bummed out about it, but my wife is like, well, it's not really that big a deal. It's three fifty. It's not it's not thousands of dollars, right? So, you know, always try to look at it on the positive side, and because if you really focus on the negative side, you know, you start second guessing yourself and you start getting down this slippery slope and you you're not going to get out of there well bob this has been an awesome episode with a lot of different unique angles from the geo arbitrage to like investing in canada and also doing all that with children so thank you so much for coming on the show it's been awesome but we can never cover everything in someone's story or their investment strategy on one episode so where is the best place someone could go to find more information about you and your story yeah, it's been fun. If they want to find more about my story, they could check out my blog, talcan.com. So that's T-A-W-C-A-N.com. In case anybody's wondering what Talcan stands for, that stands for Taiwanese Canadian. That's a word I made up and just happened nobody uses that word. So I, I continue using it. So it's cool. I'm also pretty active on Twitter. So you can find me on uh, at Talcan on Twitter as well. So yeah, my blog and, and Twitter will be the best places to get in contact with me. Perfect. We will definitely link both of those up in the show notes. And one question we ask all of our guests, Bob, is what is your number one tactical tip for those on the path to financial independence? I would definitely say, okay, can I say two things? Yep. (laughs) So first one would be spend less than you earn. And then the second thing would be get your money work hard for you so you don't have to. So that means invest your money in assets like stocks or real estate or anything that would appreciate in value. Last thing you want is hide your money under your mattress because that won't do anything. (laughs) Awesome. Well, we've almost got you out of here, but we do have one more question for you. It's that wild card question that I didn't prepare for, Cody didn't prepare for, so there's no way you did. But Bob, are you ready? I sure am. So I've seen you make some mentions around your blog about these weird ways that you've made money or that you've saved money that sort of topic. So I just want you to give the audience, what is the weirdest way that you have either made and or saved money? (laughs) Good question. So in my younger days, when I was doing a lot of uh, outdoor stuff, I actually camped out in front of an outdoor store. It's called MEC Mountain Equipment Co-op. It's like the REI equivalent. So each year, I think twice a year, they used to have these uh, equipment sales where they would, they would sell their rental gears for really, really cheap. To give you an idea, I got a pair of hiking boots for like $20. I got a pair of skis for like 100 boots for ski boots for maybe 50 right? A tent for, um, I think it was $30. And so these are like return gears or rental gears that they, they're trying to get rid of. So, you know, I slept on the street, which is like a busy street for overnight. I think it was like, 20 hours or something. And it was with a bunch of friends. So that was fine. We were like drinking on the street and, you know, partying on the street. It was hard to sleep at night is where you're plugged and there's like ambulance going by, but it was fine. You get used to it. So that that's one crazy thing I, I've done to save money. When I was living with a roommate, I try not to use the uh, dryer so much because it costs money. So I would uh, dry my clothes on the hanger and even in the winter. So what I do is I open all the windows, sleep in sleeping bags and make sure I'm warm and get my clothes dried up. 
my roommates are, was probably wondering why why the the apartment is, is always so cold, but you know, that saved me some money. So those are two crazy things I I did. And and oh yeah, the final thing I want to mention is uh, remember we talked about when I was living in Germany and traveling all over Europe. So I definitely did some crazy stuff to save money, like sleeping in the airport, sleeping in a bus station, hitchhike with some rain strangers instead of buying like a, a train ticket, all that sort of stuff. Just and and that that makes the adventure more more fun too, right? So all the all these three things I mentioned I did, which could be pretty crazy in some people's eyes. Well, like Justin said, Bob, thank you again for coming on and sharing just how possible frugality is. It's just taking a little spin, a little different angle on everyday situations and picking the cheaper one. It might be more inconvenient, like sleeping outside for 20 hours to get camping equipment or sleeping in a bus station, but it will save you money. And if you're all about saving money, if you do want to hit financial independence faster, like you said, spend less than you earn. So again, thank you so much for spending your time with us today, Bob. Thanks for having me on. It's been uh, fun talking to you guys. Cody, this was definitely an interesting episode, talking a lot more about geo-arbitrage than we've had any other guests talk about. What did you think about the episode? Yeah, one of the first things that I really loved that Bob does, and this is something that he's been doing since his 20s when he took that trip over to Germany, is slow travel. And Justin, I know you and I are huge into slow travel, and this is something I'm always trying to pull people onto the slow travel boat, but it's just not something that's normal in American culture. Like we'll go on a vacation for a week, spend 5,000 bucks, come home, and you're so burnt out because you were just drinking and partying the entire vacation. But the slow travel thing is just awesome. You go spend six months in a place or you spend a year in a place. You actually immerse yourself in the culture and it's a lot cheaper because like you had mentioned in the episode, you get to disperse those costs over a way longer period. So instead of staying in a fancy hotel for five nights, you get to stay in a super cheap Airbnb for six months. And with the plane ticket, you get to spread the cost of a whatever, how much the plane ticket was over six months instead of over the course of a couple of days. And there's so many other benefits of slow travel. I mean, it's way lower stress. It's probably healthier. You get to cook at home more if you're in things like an Airbnb. And so that was one of my big takeaways from the episode, just kind of reinforcing how much I love slow travel and how much I can't wait to do it once this COVID pandemic is over. Yeah, I definitely love that that's just a different way of thinking about it. It's kind of challenging that cultural norm. And another one is where we live. You know, so often people just live where they grew up and they never move and they never really think about it. Not only do they not think about opportunities such as like work opportunities, but they also don't think about how much cheaper it could be for them financially. So whether it's taxes, whether it's cost of living, whether it's housing, maybe maybe you don't live in a market where real estate is a good option. You could move to one if you don't feel comfortable with doing real estate long distance. Like there's all these things that open up potentially by moving to a different location. I mean, even Bob living in Vancouver, like he knows that he could sell his house there and move somewhere else, do that geo arbitrage and be retired right now. Yeah, I really like what you just said there about the mindset thing. Cause I often, I say this a lot that like people just don't realize how many options there are. Like you just mentioned with the real estate example, so many people will live in an area, say California or New York City, and they're like, you know what, I'm just never getting into real estate because it's so far out of my comfort zone and every property is a million dollars. But we've had so many guests on here who have invested far away from home. The first one that comes to mind is Dustin Heiner. That guy's picking up properties all around the country because the numbers work. And it's because he's willing to look at a problem with a slightly different angle and make it work for him. And even in my own personal example, like, I was looking at houses in Massachusetts. It didn't quite work out. I went right over the border to Putnam, Connecticut, and boom, there was a deal that was cash flowing and that made a lot of sense. 
So it's just looking at problems a little bit differently. And Bob is definitely a guy who's not afraid to kind of take the path less traveled. He was taking the path less traveled when it came to traveling with kids or packing (laughs) peanut butter and jellies for an entire week of a trip or sleeping on a train or hitchhiking or sleeping outside to get deals on hiking and camping gear. And of course, to a lot of people, this sounds absolutely crazy. But if you kind of make a game out of it, and I know, Justin, you and I both love gamifying expenses, like figuring out the cheapest way you can possibly do something, it becomes really, really fun, and it can just supercharge your path to financial independence. And now it's time for the call to action. So the call to action this week is to actually consider one of these slow travel trips. So if you have a vacation coming up where you're flying somewhere, maybe a different country, say it's just a week or two. Take and compare that to what it would be like if you went for, say, six months. And instead of staying in a hotel, like Cody said earlier, maybe look at a reasonable Airbnb. Maybe you realize like, hey, since you're there for six months, you don't need to eat out every night. Like maybe you cook some of those meals in the home. Just really think through what it would look like if you live there for a full six months versus just that six to 10 days and see what the price difference really is. And obviously, we covered a ton in this episode. So if there's anything you want to dig into, read the show notes and learn more about Bob. You can do that over at thefyshow.com slash Bob. That's thefyshow.com slash Bob. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.